0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home, a podcast in which we're exploring the Psalms and trying to restore a little bit of that lost sense of community and discussion that we love about Sabbath School. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Psalm 108. For those of you who have been hanging out for this since it was misadvertised two weeks ago, this is your opportunity. I'm Lachlan, and I live in Sydney. I attend Castle Hill Church, and I'm standing in for CAM this evening, Taking the responsibility for the introduction.
1: Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Uh, I work in the courts uh, in Launceston and uh, good to be back looking at this psalm finally. Hello, everyone. I'm Luke. Uh, I work for ADRA in Hong Kong, and I'm very happy to
2: be uh, joining this conversation again.
3: And I'm Cameron. I, I, I am joining this conversation, looking forward to it a lot. I'll be leaving soon, though. I'm fighting a very persistent headache. I. I went back to school, back to work today, and one of the things they've done to combat the spread of coronavirus is turned off all the bubblers at school. And I left, at the end of the day, very dehydrated, and um, I'm suffering for that now. So I've got a migraine, but no coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a win. I was actually going to call in sick, and I thought I might play a a bit of a a sneaky trick for this psalm, which I'll confess to now. My idea, Locke, was to call you. And say that I couldn't make it to the recording. But what I really wanted—the main idea I wanted you to pass on on my behalf—was I found Psalm 108 very difficult. Particularly, it's it's very flippant and sort of gloating attitude towards Israel's enemies, almost objectionable. Um, that comes into the towards the end of the psalm. And then, Ken, I was going to contact you and say that I couldn't join the podcast, and say that what I wanted. You to pass on was that this was one of my favourite psalms, and how delightful it was! How delightful it was to see some humour um, injected into the scripture, uh, and then just see how it played out.
0: Well, that would have been entertaining. But thanks for joining us, uh, even though it's it's only for part of this episode. Let's read Psalm one hundred and eight.
2: O oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand, and hear me.
0: God has promised in his holiness, With exultation I will divide up Shechem, and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you
1: not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for human help is worthless. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Hmm. You know, there is something about reading it out loud
2: that that you don't get if you just read it silently. Uh, Especially the praise. The praise is very enjoyable to read. Enjoyable is maybe not the right word, but it's good.
1: I must say, I feel a bit like you described the psalm too. Lachlan, or you would have done, uh, I, I find it a bit, there seems to be a an arrogance to it that's somewhat disturbing.
3: Yeah.
0: So that's how I felt about it when I read through it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so often, arrogance and confidence, or arrogance and enthusiasm, that line is a bit culturally defined. I'm thinking particularly of various times uh, when I've spent just brief periods of time in the US, and... Compared, there's so much similarity between American and Australian culture. The language is common. Some elements, broad strokes, of the history are common. But the cultures are quite different, aren't they? And I find sometimes it's difficult to judge the gap between arrogance and confidence.
1: Look, it's very true. I spent uh, years as a teenager uh, in the US. And one of the things about American culture is that when you uh, are at a meeting um, and you're asked to introduce yourself... Um, it's expected that you will uh, tell everybody your achievements uh, and present them in the most favourable light possible. Or when you are introduced to somebody, uh, it's expected that um, uh, you'll let everybody know uh, what you've done. Um, In Australia, uh, although we have that common language, the culture is very different. Uh, That would be seen as blowing your own trumpet, big nosing, um, uh, whereas it's expected. At least it was when I was there. So you're quite right that we need to be culturally sensitive
0: when we approach a psalm like this. So, Cam, while you're here, what were the elements of it that most jumped out at you in the context of this idea of perhaps even gloating arrogance?
3: Well, I like the start of it. I think the start's fine. I like the last two verses. I, I think they're superb. So, you know, just beginning with the steadfast trust in God and uh, an intent to worship God. You know, it says, awake, harp, and liar. That's fine. I'm happy with that. Um, I think that the verse 12 is a real common theme that we're picking up in the Psalms. Give us aid against the enemy for the help of man is worthless. I like that. The, the bit that caused me a little bit of stress, and it, it's either a, a playful joke or um, a racist slur, Gilead is mine in verse 8 Manasseh is mine Ephraim is my helmet Judah my scepter Moab is my washbasin <laughs> over Edom I toss my sandal over Philistia I shout in triumph and I thought that that contrast between being the helmet and the scepter as opposed to the washbasin wash and the and the shoe stand was fairly marked
0: <laughs> So what do we all think do we are we are we feeling that is more of the of the perhaps arrogant gloating or more of the voice of humor coming out
1: it it a straightforward reading makes it sound like gloating and indeed it's a, a reference to what god has promised in his sanctuary uh, it sounds like something pretty formal to me
0: mm mm i i certainly um find myself Agreeing with you, Cam, on this one, the it, it's a little bit troubling, isn't it? Uh, so it starts, it, it's almost as if it's deliberately making that strong contrast uh, by starting with um, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet. It's to do with heads, with identity. It's speaking of, of possession. And then Moab, Edom and Philistia are clearly being contrasted. Hmm.
3: I'm going back to t- school to teach tomorrow and I might try it in some of the classes where I have difficult students. I might say, John here is is a my helmet and Alice is my scepter, but you are my washbasin. <laughs> let's, let's see how it's taken. Well,
1: I note you didn't attribute the washbasin to any particular student no. or use any name there, Cameron. No,
2: <laughs> but we could all hear you thinking <laughs> I personally detest boasting. I find it very difficult to hear and even harder to do. And I really don't like this (laughs) psalm. (laughs) You know, uh, I've read it through multiple times and I just, it doesn't make me like the author. I think this guy's setting himself up for a well-deserved failure.
3: It is a little out of character, isn't it? Because David is marked for for uncharacteristic humility for someone in his in the position of king even the manner in which he becomes king he has so many opportunities to to wrest the the kingship from Saul and he, he turns them down and um, he famously danced naked uh, before the ark or at least um, naked enough that his wife was embarrassed he's not someone who seems to stand much on personal dignity I wonder if perhaps Whatever redeeming thought there is in this psalm is found, or redeeming context, is found in verse 11. It
1: is an interesting contrast. The rest of this psalm speaks about David's steadfast heart, about God's greatness and his glory being absolutely everywhere, about how the people on his side um, are all supported by God and those... Uh, who were on the other side uh, uh, downtrodden, but verse eleven seems to completely go the opposite direction. Uh, well, God hasn't been helping us out, and uh, He doesn't go out with our armies, uh, and it's almost as if He's trying a bit of reverse psychology on God to get Him back out on the on the team again.
3: Mm. So when God says, when when it says in verse seven, God has spoken from His sanctuary. Judah's my sceptre, but Moab's my washbasin. Is that something that um, the author has on on good authority via some mode of inspiration? Is he is that something that that he's certain God, has actually said? Is he is he a, a journalist reporting on God's sayings, or is it a device that he's using to convince God? He's saying God, because you know, we discover at the end of the Psalm that the God actually hasn't been with their armies, whatever that means. Presumably this might follow some you know, smaller defeat. And David's employing this language to remind God of his promises.
2: I, th- and this is, this is just <laughs> a reading of this that uh, I am attempting to accept to feel more kindly towards the author. But perhaps the whole thing is, is an attempt at self-encouragement you know the the verses 10 and 11 suggest that things have not gone well perhaps and this whole thing is is yes an appeal to god for help and a recognition uh, that it is that human help is is worthless um that god's help is needed but also uh, a sort of way of speaking positively to himself talking about the victory as though it existed, though it hasn't yet come to pass, as a form of
0: encouragement.
3: A bit like a sort of a pep rally or a cheerleading. Yeah, exactly.
0: There is something interesting that I'm noticing in my Bible. I'm looking at an ESV, and it actually puts quotation marks around, if I'm seeing it correctly, verse 7 to verse 9, basically. So it reads here, God has promised in his holiness... And then opening quotation marks with exultation, i will divide up shechem Ephraim is my helmet so on so on down to moab my wash basin and then over philistia i shout in triumph close quotation marks that implies the author here is quoting something and i went looking just now to see if i could find what it is not very clearly although almost the same thing thanks to the cross references in the margin of my bible Psalm 60, verses 6 to 8. God has spoken in His Holiness, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. That's pretty much the same thing, isn't it?
3: I wonder, was it like a war cry?
0: Well, that's right. I'm wondering if it's like you know uh, the the team chant that you sing when you're with all of your fellow supporters at the stadium, yeah. watching your you know your footy team play or something. This is a different way of looking at it. Is the author here in Psalm 108 reflecting on a feeling of God rejecting them, which is echoed in verse 11, and is trying to sort of Restore confidence. Go through those those cheer songs and really build something. Build something. And sort of say, isn't that what it's meant to be like?
2: In, in fact, Psalm sixty is very similar to Psalm one hundred and eight. The last four verses, as well,
1: are uh, more or less the same. Right. And indeed, on looking for similarities, if one goes to Psalm fifty-seven, uh, Psalm fifty-seven verse seven comes after a break. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. So almost, well, precisely the same start. And you, your, great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So that element of this um, uh, fi- is found elsewhere in Psalm 57. Mm. It seems there's, this is a repeat yeah, um, well, of other other psalms,
3: which just means if it occurs twice, it's just twice as difficult. But things could be worse. I'm just running my eye idly as you were speaking, Ken, down Psalm 109, and I think it's we've definitely got to leave that one for another day. That's that's got some serious stuff in it. In terms of the cheerleader thing, uh, I'm gonna to have to duck soon and and go to my well, hopefully well earned rest for the night and shake this headache. But I've got in front of me a cartoon. This is a cartoon from the website XKCD, which is a very off-centre, oblique sort of a humour. But uh, some real gems in it, and this is about a pep rally. And the cartoon shows an enthusiastic uh, cheerleader with some pom-poms out the front of a group of high school students. And the cheerleader saying, Lakeview High is the best. And all the students are cheering. And one of the students in the front row stands up and says, wait, why? The cheerleader says, what? Well, well, a guy on the North High football team helped me rebuild my deck. Seems ungrateful to presume we're better. I mean, school districts are just based on zip codes. And another voice pipes up, "Yeah, their principal donated a kidney to my dad." I'm texting with my friend over there now. He says we can go and join in with their rally if we want. Okay, let's go. And there's there's an absolutely crestfallen cheerleader just sitting there in front of an empty bleachers while well, everyone runs off to be friends with the neighboring high school. <laughs>
1: It reminds me of a of a scene from a, a Monty Python movie, um, uh, where they were complaining about the Romans and what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, they've given us roads and water and law and order.
3: Um, anyway, there is a sense, though, that as you certainly as you move into the New Testament, and we've commented on this before, the us versus them mentality is reinterpreted. In a way that does have real value for our lives, and that is this idea of the internal battle within us, the the spirit versus the flesh, the the part of us that is anxious to do God's work from the part that hinders us, and this internal struggle that Paul talks about, um, sort of reimagines the people of God versus the pagan, you know Philistines, as as a battle that each of us has to deal with internally.
1: And indeed, it's not just that internal battle. One of the things, as I read this psalm, was, well, all right, my enemies uh, are very different, um, and perhaps not even uh, personal and people uh, to those that David was talking about. I'm not threatened by, yeah, you know, physically by a war, uh, but there are other things that I struggle with and not just those internal things, but there are other external things, other other stresses and pressures that I uh, have to deal with. What sort of prayer would this be uh, prayed about the
0: struggles and the difficulties that I have to deal with? Yeah, Ken, that inspires me. Um, You know, perhaps I could say something like supervising the research student is my helmet and writing a high-impact paper is my scepter but travel paperwork and oh are my washed basin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, oh is everyone's wash basin. <laughs> a suitably appropriate non-slip flooring under the wash basin, I hope, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Very good. <laughs> so there was something ca- that came up just, just in a few moments ago in our conversation that touches on something that I've thought a lot, which is about the state that David may have been. This Psalm 108 is called a Psalm of David. And, you know, we're wondering a little bit about the author. Are they um, claiming that this idea of Moab being their wash basin, is that a rallying cry? Is that a pronouncement, a sort of prophetic statement of we are better than them and God is on our side? Where does it fit into this pattern of relating to the other, relating to the stranger? And on that theme, we have some difficulty as contemporary 21st century Australian Christians or global Christians looking back and accessing some of the much more us versus them stories of the Old Testament. And one thing that comes up really regularly whenever we're talking about David is people will say, oh, yeah, but but remember, David was a man after God's own heart. And that that's true. It is described that way. But it's, I think, really illustrative to remind ourselves of where that description comes in the story of David. It comes in the stu- in 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. God is speaking through Samuel to Saul, and Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him, to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So it's pretty early in the story of David. That's the point that I'm trying to get across. And that is quoted again in the New Testament in Acts 13, verse 22. Well, starting verse 21, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. In both cases, that phrase, a man after God's heart, is used in application to the early life, early career stage King David. And I find that observation really helpful because certainly there are episodes in David's life where you have to look on and say, what part of God's heart is David following or revealing if it really is true that he is a man after God's own heart. Certainly towards the latter stage of David's life, there are episodes that don't seem to fit very well. So I find it quite comforting and revealing and at the same time a little bit challenging to reflect on that description in the way it's applied in the Bible to David as a younger person. You know, if it's tough enough for David with a fairly robust connection to God and a lot of good things happening in his life if it's tough enough for him to maintain a steady experience of revealing god's character to the people around him then we have to acknowledge that it's kind of tough for us and so i think that it's probably interesting to recognize that potentially here in psalm 108 some of these sentiments may not be easily brushed over by saying ah but david was a man after god's own heart so therefore all of this is you know direct word from god it's revelation of god's character I think we need to grapple with it in the way that we have been.
1: And and maybe Cameron's point fits in there as well, because it's some of those internal struggles that we have, the ones that Paul spoke about. I don't do the things that I've decided to do, and I do the things that I've decided not to do. Uh, David uh, struggled with those things as well, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see that very much Mm. in the story of David. There are some parts of David's story that make very good children's stories, and there are some episodes... Uh, in the story of David and his family that certainly do not. Mm.
2: I think the key point to remember, which you've, you've alluded to already, Lachlan, is that being after God's own heart doesn't suddenly make you perfect. I think, for me, the part the part of David's story that most speaks to me about him being a, a man after God's own heart is when he is repentant after doing something wrong, you know, and he's genuinely from the depths of his soul sorry for the mistake mm. that he made. It, it, there's, there's, there's no implication in anything that I've, I've read in the Bible that being after a man over God's own heart made him uh, a perfect human being or you know impervious to temptation or, or failure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's quite an encouraging thing to think about. And, and
1: indeed, if, if he is a man after God's own heart, and I'm not using the word in its chronological sense there, but the phrase, you know, he takes after his father, It doesn't mean he's identical to his father. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There are similarities, but that doesn't mean uh, that there's identity. Yes. Uh, so there's still plenty of room for mistakes to have been made and plenty of them made. I think one of the aspects of, da- of David being after God's own heart uh, comes out when you read the stories about, notwithstanding the, this psalm here, about other ways that he treated his enemies. and not just his son Absalom and how he weep or he wept uh, for uh, his loss, but also about uh, how he treated the descendants of Saul and how he did not gloat in the defeat of Saul. And indeed, again, what does this say about David? But uh, uh, sometimes messengers came to him with uh, news of the defeat of his enemies and taking credit for it. And he ended up killing those who had killed his enemies because uh, they ought not
0: be uh, gloating in that yeah. way. It's very interesting that David is pretty consistent in his absolute fastidious focus on the fact that Saul, even when he was be- turning astray, Saul was the anointed one of the Lord. You know, in the cave where he cut some of Saul's cloak off, his some of his companions are encouraging him to do a lot worse with his weapon. And he says, no, well, I can't. I can't do that. Yeah, I certainly see uh, you know, many elements in the character of David uh, are strong virtues. And I think certainly earlier in his life, as, as described in the stories of the Old Testament, David is an utterly remarkable person. And perhaps if we're being slightly critical of him as he ages, I mean, honestly, we may just be commenting the age-old adage that Dealing with power is a complex thing for a human being. And once David becomes that person in charge, wielding the power, it seems empirically that it just becomes slightly more difficult for him to see the straight and narrow path that he should be walking on. And again, I presume that's a strong caution for those of us living today as well. Yes, it's certainly one that I take to heart, inadequately, no doubt,
1: uh, but uh, doing the best that I can with God's help. There's some of the difficulties in this psalm, but I really would like to just come right back to the first verse. My heart is steadfast, O God. What is it that makes a steadfast heart? What, what is this value
0: of steadfast that we should emulate? What does it look like? I think that it looks like determination, you know, a focus. It speaks to me in terms of, well, right now, today, I'm not feeling particularly upbeat about this, or I'm not feeling particularly inspired by this task today, but I am sticking at it. I'm sticking at it with my focus. I'm concentrating on it. I'm giving it my best effort. So it, it speaks of a commitment that goes beyond just the immediate emotional state or, or immediate reaction, but, but a much more... Deeply set determination. Mm, determination's a good word, I think. There too,
2: I when considering the idea of steadfastness, I always think of Job. I think that's a pretty good example. Yeah, especially. I mean, it, the the story of Job. It's not just about how he keeps his faith in God through all the hardships, but also maybe even more difficult is is the, the friends who are well meaning but. You know, are really doing their best to get him to give up when you read that book, sort of all the bad things that happen to him happen quite quickly at the beginning, and then there's chapter after chapter of this conversations with his friends. Uh, you feel like that's really the harder part for him to deal with, and yet he does so.,
0: mm. yeah, so there's a constancy to it uh, and importantly, I think a constancy that is robust enough to handle external buffeting circumstances, events, things, to me, steadfast speaks of something that endures quite a lot of buffeting.
1: It stands firm no matter the consequences. Indeed, even if one reads verse 11, uh, apparent rejection and uh, lack of support from God.
2: I suppose it supports the idea that this was maybe written after a setback or a disappointment or a failure. He begins by emphasizing the steadfastness. I I will praise you even though I'm not feeling great right now.
0: Yeah. If that is the situation, then it is remarkable, isn't it, that the first half, solid half of this psalm, is devoted to praise and thanks to God. It's true. And the an expression of
1: the pervasive and strong, firm faithfulness of God everywhere in all things at all times.
0: Mm. What's it making you think? Verse 3. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Is that in the face of aggression from other nations? A little bit like stories of Nehemiah or stories back to the Exodus or or even the, you know, later in the story, the Daniel and the idea of giving thanks and praising God in exile from among the peoples of other nations. Is that the sort of sense that this is happening? Or is this, I will give thanks to your Lord among the peoples that I have already conquered or defeated in in battle?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I wondered whether or not that has any correlation to what we're often called or badgered uh, to do when we're Told we need to be witnesses, Mm. and what does that mean?
2: I I do think it maybe has some connection with with other stories of this point in the Israelite's history, the sort of persecution or criticism that they endured because you know their gods didn't have their god, I should say, didn't have an idol. You know, they were they were always the odd one out in the international community of that region because everybody else worshipped different gods, but in more or less the same way with, with idols and a pantheon, and at least as far as I'm aware. Um, and so they, they really stood out as being different. And there was always this, at least in many Bible stories, this contest between the invisible God of the, the Israelites and the gods of the, the people around them.
1: You couldn't point to that statue or that physical item somewhere in the world or the sun or uh, whatever it might be. And say, well, there you go, there's my God. The Israelites couldn't do that. And yet they had the Ark of the Covenant that seemed to, on occasions, almost become something like that for them. Mm, that's an idea. Now you've got me thinking. <laughs>
0: well, it is interesting, isn't it? In the story of David, uh, the Ark plays a role in some of those stories. And David would have loved to have been the person to build the temple, to house the ark, and to visibly express God's dwelling place amongst his people, and wasn't the right person in God's eyes to make that happen. So some of these themes are pretty deep in the story of David. One of the other things
1: that I've reflected on reading this psalm is, who was David? Well, he was a soldier. He was a general. Uh, in the end, the king, but a king who had blood on his hands. Now, he, and had blood on his hands as part of consolidating uh, the the Israelites, or at least Judah and and the Israelites when he was in charge of both in their um, occupation of the land. Now, what is a soldier going to be praying for? Mm. The sorts of things that David is praying for here, perhaps. That doesn't mean they're the things that we ought pray for. But perhaps we ought pray for the things that we need God's help with. I mean, I know we need it with everything, but how do we translate that into our lives, into our vocations, into our callings? A A little bit like what we were talking about previously.
0: I guess in a lot of our vocations, we don't have such a stark us-versus-them narrative. I mean, mm. if being a policeman really meant living the life that we imagine when we're six and seven years old playing cops and robbers, then, then perhaps a policeman is getting close. But I know from talking to acquaintances of mine who have been or work as policemen that it's, it's not really cops and robbers. So I suspect that's one of the biggest differences, Ken, the lack, for most of us, the lack of a strong us-versus-them worldview. Mm. but and, but how then do we
1: translate the steadfast uh, heart into our callings and and how do we praise the lord among the peoples uh, that we uh, associate with and and i don't necessarily mean uh, how does uh, what words do we use although words of course are important but in this case david is if you like saying well give us victory so that your greatness can be demonstrated. But what is it in our lives that will enable God's greatness and faithfulness to be demonstrated? And I suspect the answer will be different for, for each of us. But we ought to think about it.
0: Yeah. There is one thing that's jumping out at me that, that I, I read a little bit as a, as a missional challenge here. Verse 6. God is to be uplifted and exalted, that your beloved ones may be delivered. And the beloved ones here is almost certainly for David, him and the people of Israel. But it also reminds me so much of of many passages that speak of concern, God's concern, and the concern we are expected to have for the marginalized and disadvantaged of any kind. You know, and Jesus speaks of, let the little children come to me. And so the beloved ones here, are, I am reading that as a phrase. Let the beloved ones may be delivered. Well, what about if that was, God, bless me in my life, or make, thank you for loving me, and be exalted. In verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth and over me and my interaction with people so that I can be an agent of deliverance. To those you love, to the beloved ones, which, of course, we have to see very broadly, don't we? To all of those in the world and in our, in our societies that we come in contact with. That gives the idea somewhat of a missional challenge, making us align with God's mission of delivering those he loves or his beloved creation.
1: Yeah, I like that. Part of the justice in the Psalms. Mm. Mm. not entirely supported by verses 7 to (laughs) (laughs) to
2: (laughs) 10 verses 7 to 9 do continue to bug me um, I have to admit maybe we can get our
1: listeners to to help us
2: I
0: I think if any listeners have any ideas that are helpful make sure that you you press pause right now and start drafting those thoughts as an email to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com we, we are in need of help on this one. I think that it is interesting, though, that these verses that trouble us so much are prefaced in the start of verse 7 by God promising in his holiness. So whatever they sound like to our ears, they seem to be producing in the mind of the author the mental image or the connotation of God's holiness. God steadfast adherence to his promises, God's deliverance. They're troubling in their expression, but they're quite positive in their intent, in their connotation. Well, I appreciate all of those thoughts.
1: Are there, is there anything else that jumps out at you, Luke? So verses seven to
2: nine, you talked about how it's quoted as as being a something that mm. God has said, and it's also repeated in previous Psalms. To me, that just shouts out that This is a kind of a standard sort of rallying cry of David's kingdom or era that is attributed to God, but did it really come from God? Is this the sort of thing that God would say, that he'd cast his shoe over a place or call a place his washpot? That just, you know, other parts of the Bible where we have statements directly attributed to God certainly there's there's wrath and there's anger and there's there's punishment and and retribution but there's not mockery mm. there is an insult
1: it doesn't sound like the voice of God to me I think that's a perfectly legitimate attempt to come to grips with what's in the what's in the psalm I would put a contrast where you say you don't see mockery and uh, I'd just remind us about jesus talking to the religion scholars and calling them whitewashed tombs like their plates their bowls with clean on the outside and maggots on the inside <laughs> uh this this they're, they're, they're almost sounded to be a similar sort of mockery as calling somebody a wash basin <laughs> Well, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. It may be that I'm I'm missing,
2: uh, you know uh, uh, ignoring. There's, no, there's things.
1: no criticism of what you're saying in that. I just thought, isn't it interesting how there's there's these two ways of, of viewing things in the scripture.
0: Mm. I think one thing that is a is a is probably a kernel of why we find this this part of Psalm 108 so uncomfortable, is that it's not addressing a truth a hard truth about someone on the basis of their demonstrated behavior it's speaking in broad strokes about someone on the basis of the cultural country they come from and and in our world we find that so difficult because we it's so natural it's been a feature of human cultures throughout the ages but we find it to be an unpleasant and unhelpful feature of human cultures and of course we're working so hard to try and train ourselves into a more generous way of approaching strangers, new people, um, and not just fall into the easy trick of putting them in a bucket on the basis of where they come from or colour of skin or length of hair or or anything like that. So that's the one distinct difference that I can identify, Ken, between Psalm 108 talking about Moab as a wash basin for the Israelites versus Jesus Giving some stern words to a a class of powerful people who had a track record of probably abusing that power, certainly it seems in the eyes of Jesus, they were not responsibly utilizing their their position.
1: Yes, I see that. I don't know that there's a
2: clear answer for it,
0: no. Well, I was going to just draw our attention slightly to the last verses. We have mentioned that we like them a bit better than the middle section. But particularly verses 12 and 13, you know, vain is the salvation of man. Vain is the help of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. As difficult as we find the idea of God being, you know, claiming God to be on our side and to tread down our enemies and us versus them. The underlying message of the psalmist here is acknowledging the need for God and the futility of human help in some some things. And that's probably something that's quite an important message for us, certainly for me, who tends to be someone who enjoys being that bit self-sufficient, enjoys having mastery of tasks that I need to do, is pretty inclined to think, well, I can do that myself. Perhaps it's worth just contemplating the the sentiment that it's God that will help this be done valiantly, and it's pretty much vain f- to trust in the efforts of man.
2: It reminds me of one of the other psalms we looked at recently where it, it talked about things are in vain, you do things in vain. You put effort in in vain unless God allows
1: it to happen also. Psalm 127 you're referring to, Luke, I think. There you go. I'll just try yeah. and make myself look good.
0: <laughs> it is. It's 127. One. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain.
2: Yes, that's exactly the one. And
0: for the benefit yeah. of the listeners, Ken had that immediately. It's not a trick of the editing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. Well, can I, before we finish, I just, I just, did. This, this has just come to me now, as I look at verses 11 through to 13, read them in this way. God, you have rejected us and don't go out with us anymore. And God, it is you who will gain the victory and trample down our enemies. Is there not something in that which is suggesting that it is not what humans do because their help is worthless? But God in his sovereignty, perhaps even in his creative sovereignty, but certainly in his sustaining sovereignty, is even Lord of the nations uh, and determines who wins and who doesn't in the end. Uh, So that theres it's a message about God's sovereignty because not only does he trample the enemies, but he also doesn't support us. And it is only when he determines it uh, that there is victory. Mm.
2: I think, Ken, that's a really, really great way to look at it, that there is definitely in those verses a reminder that it's not that God is on our side. It's that we're on God's side. Uh, we've got to get the hierarchy correct. Uh, he doesn't serve us.
0: Ken, the way you have described that and unpacked those verses makes me think very strongly of the story at the start of Joshua. But it's not at the very start of the book. In chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That's not an answer. It's, it's a challenge that maybe the question isn't the right question.
1: Well, it, it is an answer. It's
2: an answer to both questions.
1: In the NIV, it's it, the question is, are you for us or for our en- enemies? And uh, the translation there says, neither. He replied,
0: but as commander mm. of the
1: army of the Lord, I have now come. So the same, exactly the same thought, perhaps expressed a little more uh, explicitly.
0: Yeah, and I've always found that to be a really interesting idea. We get so so drawn into our own definitions of who's right and who's wrong or even what the battle lines are. How do you determine which is the side versus the other side? And so we constantly asking, are you on our side or on or on the adversary's side? And God's messenger to Joshua pretty much in my ears challenges Joshua and says hey that's not the right question. The question is I am God and are you on my side? And it could even be, you're right, Ken, the end of Psalm 108 is a little bit the same. You know, you've rejected us. Oh, have you not rejected us? Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. So our own human efforts are not going to get us where we need to go. God, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes, whoever they are. So there may even be an acknowledgement there that the foes God treads down may not even map one-to-one to the adversaries we think we've identified. Mm. Mm. Mm.
2: That's, a, that's a very important thing to remember. I like that a lot. That uh, makes me feel much better about the whole
0: song.
1: <laughs> well, that, that's, that's very encouraging. It occurs to me that he is essentially saying whatever we do and whatever we plan It will come to nothing uh, unless we are aligned with what God seeks to do in the world.
0: Well, let's take that as the challenge for this week. May we align ourselves with God and God's mission more fervently than we attempt to ask God to align to our desires. Amen. That's too good an ending to waste, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Remember, you can send questions, comments, and thoughts to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We love reading them, and we also enjoy sharing them. Next week, we're going to have another go at aligning our study of the Psalms a little bit with the lesson pamphlet for the week, which is on the Bible as history. We're going to be looking at Psalm 114. We look forward to you joining us again, and thank you for listening.